for all of you people out there that aren't Star Wars fans, uh, you can probably go ahead and turn it off right now. I'm Charlie Camosi. I'm Jennifer Jamer. And I'm Jonathan Lace, and you're listening to Vernacular, a podcast about faith, culture, and meaning. October 25th, 2015, Episode 4, Star Wars. What's up, guys? Hey, Jonathan. Hey. So, yeah, so it's been two weeks, time flies, and in terms of uh, some follow-up from last time, Senator Jim Webb and former Senator and Governor Lincoln Chafee are out of the presidential race. So I don't think anyone was shocked by that. I was shocked that they were actually even up on the stage a couple weeks ago. So I'm <laughs> not shocked that they're yeah. off the stage. Yeah. I'm, I'm just glad Jim Webb was in long enough for Alec Baldwin to play him. Oh, Saturday Night Live, oh gosh. So. It was so good. <laughs> That whole sketch was brilliant. Yeah. I have to catch that one. I was I was at a conference most of the weekend, so I didn't get to catch up on Saturday Night Live. It was so good. I mean, Larry David playing Bernie Sanders was just <laughs> destiny for Larry David. It was so spot-on good. It was so good. There's, there's so many things that were awesome about that, including the fact that I think Larry David used to write for Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. and, and never got any of his sketches on. <laughs> and, he, and he likes to talk about that. And now he just, he just well, he cer- certainly made a huge success for himself, but he comes back in in all his Bernie Sanders playing glory. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it was just beautiful. Just yeah. beautiful. Uh, yeah, so... It's been two weeks, and Webb Chafee uh, are out of the presidential race. And in terms of follow-up, that's really, I think, all that I want to say. Either you guys want to add anything to our discussion last week about um, politics and the race? I personally think that Jim Webb was probably running just so that he could get to say that he ripped somebody's ear off on stage. That was the only reason for his campaign that I could discern. And that's a perfectly fine reason to go and run a campaign. I wonder if he doesn't have the Lindsey Graham reason for running, which or had the Lindsey Graham reason for running to say, like, I would make a darn good secretary of defense, but I'm not going to be president mm-hmm. or at least, you know, try to make that case. Yeah, I think that that's probably a little bit where he's at. I could see him doing a very good job in an administration, um, particularly if it was a Hillary Clinton administration. I could see him being a very viable sort of figure. Hmm, yeah, I don't know if uh, his uh, if his record on gun control would be something that she could uh, stomach. Well, I mean, he's he's such a weird figure, though, having been Republican, then not been Republican, and then thinking about running as an independent, that it's like very hard to get a beat on him. But he isn't going to be objectionable to anybody. So if you have to get him confirmed, I think he wouldn't be a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's I think good he enough. would sail through, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean... For his defense, he's not going to have much to say about gun policy in the United States. Right. Yeah. 
I will say, I think, I mean, if we're just following up on the demo, Democratic um, um, stuff, which is what we focused on last time, I think Hillary Rodham Clinton has had an amazing two weeks since we last talked, right? Yeah, um, she mm-hmm. had a very strong debate. A very strong debate, and um, the Vice President of the United States decided he wasn't going to run for President of the United States. Yep. And uh, and then and then I think the 17th um, Benghazi hearings, whatever whatever um, issues they address, and I think there are some that need addressing publicly, it just was a nightmare for Republicans um, to, to be doing this again. So I think I think she won all three big, big, in a big, big way, and really is, is you know, I, I'm still not clear what's going to happen with Sanders, but I think she's sort of rescued herself, it seems, the last couple of weeks. She had a great couple of weeks. But, you know, the thing that I had noticed in the debates was that uh, when pressed on the issue by O'Malley on the issue of reinstating Glass-Steagall, you know, and I, th- I think I mentioned this earlier, I mean, Clinton, mm-hmm. you know, just totally pivoted and didn't even answer the question. So I'm expecting Sanders and O'Malley to take her to task on Glass-Steagall. And if Sanders, and I, and I can only hope that this happens, but if Sanders were during a national, uh, nationally televised presidential debate were to call her out on her largest campaign donors from Wall Street, that would just be so, so great. Um, because, I mean, he, I think he could very easily make the point, you know, how can we expect you to make meaningful Wall Street reform when some of your largest donors are the very same banks that helped cause the crisis in 2008? That's a fair question, and I hope he asks it. Yeah, I mean, I know Bernie gets a lot of hassle for shouting, but I'm sort of wondering why the American people aren't shouting. I'm not happy with the fact that Wall Street, very few people went to jail, if any. Uh, I think that that's something we need to definitely talk about, and I'm glad that Bernie and O'Malley are doing that. Uh, it's really necessary, I think. Yeah. It's worked well for him so far, but he has played really nice with, with Hillary Clinton. And maybe it's time, is it time, if he wants to really win, Mm-hmm. To make a move here and and to and to start making some very critical points. Well, he actually started already. Uh, either yesterday or the day before, there was a uh, a dinner for Democrats in Iowa. I forget the name of the dinner. Anyway, very popular dinner for Democrats. And without naming her, he t- he completely went after her policies, uh, mm-hmm. especially on the Iraq War, on NAFTA, um, and others. So it was very obvious to anyone who heard it that he was going after her without mentioning her name. Well, I guess we'll see in the next debate um, if he will actually go after her instead of yeah. just go after her policies. Yeah. yeah, that would be really interesting. But I think he doesn't have to do ad hominem. And I think that that's actually a core part of like Sandersism, if we can start calling it that, uh, is that you don't have to go after the person. You go after the vision and you supplant your own. Uh, I think it's I think it's useful. 
I think it's nice to see somebody who's not turning this into a I hate Hillary fest, but rather a here's what we should be doing instead fest, which is, I think, something that gets him a lot of credit that I think makes him sort of more appealing to a large amount of not just the base, but even to the middle of the road sort of voters who are persuadable. I think it's I think it's interesting. Yeah. And there's a way to ask the question, right, without coming up coming across as a jerk you know i mean he's he's been running a very clean campaign you know he could very easily say something like you know with all due respect to you and all your accomplishments that you've made in the state department as a senator you know when 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 people follow the money and they see that your largest contributors excuse me come from wall street you know how can how can you seriously expect us uh, to believe that meaningful reform is going to take place. I mean, th- th- there's a way to ask that question, maybe in not so many words, but there's a way to ask that question that I think is fair and that I think people would respond to very well. And remember that an ad hominem is a fallacy in an argument. Exactly. It, in in a presidential election, ad hominem is fair game, right? Like, yeah. you're, it's, about, it's about the person as well as policies. So do you trust the person? Is the person a good person? Mm-hmm. Is the person is the person a trustworthy person? Mm-hmm. Um, in an argument, whether an argument is true or false doesn't depend on whether the person is a, a trustworthy person. But I think if we're, you know, if we're addressing, you know, a, a possible president of the United States, I think somebody who claims to be on the side of the little guy mm-hmm. who is cozy with Wall Street ought to be called out. Mm-hmm. I think it ought to be called out. Yeah. I think there's also, though, for Bernie, the problem that he likes to shout. And if Bernie, Bernie has to control where he shouts, because his tendency is to speak everything at a full volume. So I think for somebody like Bernie, the trick here is to make sure that he's shouting in a way that gets him the most bang for the buck. Uh, And he's being pretty smart about that. Shouting at Wall Street rather than shouting at Hillary gets heard differently. So I think it makes sense for him to continue to shout at Wall Street. And he's just got a yeah, and he's just got a smile. You know, he can't keep yeah. he can't keep the furrowed brow on through the entirety of the debate. You know, he's got a he's got to vary the um, the delivery somewhat. Well, he's done well on Ellen. I thought that he did really well with that. He's been rolling with the Larry David um, stuff. I knew I only saw clips, but I think he's handling a lot of that better. Um, I think it's I, I think he's turning a corner in terms of being able to negotiate and, you know, demonstrate that he's not just the guy who yells about things that are worth yelling about. Yeah. So a little bit of hope. OK, um, in terms of uh, in terms of news items from the last two weeks, uh, I guess the first and most um, significant thing. Uh, was the uh, Synod of Bishops that just concluded after, was it three weeks or two weeks of deliberation? I think it was three, um, based on like a couple of tweets I saw from Father Martin. Mm -hmm. But yeah, three sounds right. So the, uh, the final document, I believe, has yet to be released. I may be mistaken. If, if either of you can find it uh, during the show, let me know. But um, the excerpt that I read from America Magazine, when it came down to the issue of communion for those who are divorced um, and remarried, I believe the decision by a two-thirds vote was to 
use what the German bishops uh, called in their proposal an internal forum for discerning uh, the, the decision about communion for divorced and remarried couples on a case-by-case basis. So um, it didn't come out and sort of make a blanket policy change. It held to the idea of the indissolubility of marriage between one man and one woman, etc., for life. But it did kind of crack the door. Uh, I think, in terms of how bishops uh, and local priests can uh, engage in the process of discernment, uh, mm-hmm. which I think, you know, for a lot of people who are in a situation like that, who are just left by their spouse, you know, through no fault of mm-hmm. their own, uh, I think that's an important moral distinction to make because everybody can see the distinction between that and between people who just don't care uh, mm-hmm. and just want the divorce, you know, they both give up. I mean, clearly there are there are moral distinctions that, that can be made. And I think pastorally, this is a very good move on Francis's part. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, too, is that so often uh, the people who are frequently left behind are sometimes women who have fled abuse situations, which is very messy to handle with an annulment. I would have liked to have seen some movement on that direction, not only in terms of the bishops, synod, but also in terms of the canon law revisions. Um, If you can prove physical abuse or emotional abuse, um, I think that that's a sign that the marital bond couldn't be formed because of the immaturity of the abuser. I think that there is really good um, pre-existing canon law that can be marshaled into service on that issue. And it surprises me that bishops, particularly in uh, parts of the the two-thirds world, is such a huge problem. I really want to see the church start really speaking for domestic violence victims Mm -hmm. uh, in very clear terms, because frequently they're the ones who are uh, forming second marriages and even not getting to have the chance at communion and it, it's just wrong mm-hmm. so charlie thoughts on the city uh, yeah i mean i just find it we could easily have a whole show on this um yeah. i find it hard to say something that wouldn't take me 20 minutes to say i guess um i think uh this has been good i think it the the fact that there's been open disagreement um, among various, even cardinals, um, and obviously between certain bishops and the Pope and cardinals and the Pope has been good and healthy, and it's certainly not new in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, goes back to the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are real issues at stake here. I think taking seriously Jesus's, um, uh, Jesus's words about uh, divorce um, pose lots of problems. Um, they seem like foolishness to the world, um, but I think I think it's good that uh, the church is is struggling with them in the ways that ways that they have been. So um, uh, that's about all I can say without getting into some specifics that would require me to <laughs> to get into something much bigger. But I, I think it, I'm I was actually one of the few people maybe who's was actually thinking it's good we have this kind of conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't want to get into it too much. Uh, either because we do have uh, a lot to talk about uh, in the remainder of the show, but um, you know, just just to what you said, uh, you know, about taking the words of Jesus seriously. I guess one question I have is, you know, well, which version of Jesus's words, right? I mean, because the saying in Matthew has an allowance for um, 
um, porneia in Greek, which is very translated variously as immorality or infidelity. Uh, so I, you know, there there are even questions. Um, you know, there are hermeneutical questions about the church's teaching and how it's based uh, on on the gospels that I think are are you know very important to to discuss. A couple of questions that I had were um, r- related to what the synod said, and, and we can talk about this at another time. Just a couple I'll just mention. Uh, so, the bishop said a lot about God's plan and marriage, right? Um, so, w- one question I have is that how can we speak meaningfully of, air quotes, God's plan for marriage in light of, one, the knowledge that we have of human origins from evolutionary science, and two, from a non-historical interpretation of Genesis 1 through 3 and, and the aforementioned, you know, versions of Jesus' teaching on marriage uh, in the gospel. Uh, so that's kind of one question that I think is important. And another one is related to the bishops who were talking about this thing they call the ideology of gender, right? And one question I have regarding that, <clears throat> excuse me, is how does theology respond when science uh, can argue for a distinction between sex orientation and gender? Um, that's that's very common in in uh, you know psychological literature um, these days, and so. Uh, I don't know if you saw the story. There's a story in the New York Times and in the Washington Post and a few other major outlets about a book called Becoming Nicole about a identical one of one of an identical uh, uh, one of a set of identical twins, and you know they were both boys, but at like from age two, you know he was asking questions like you know mommy when is my penis going to fall off, you know and stuff like that. Um, it's a whole book about like her transformation, et cetera. So I think there are a lot of issues that people in the trenches are aware of, right, from just living life that, um, that I think kind of just got glossed at the synod um, that I think would make for a great conversation later. But I don't want to get too bogged down with them now. <laughs> yeah, See, I have so much to say on that yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> that's just totally unfair. You can't throw that stuff out there and say, "I'll talk about it later." Well, I just want to—I just want to say that these are questions that I have, right? Um, good lord, good lord. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, those are just questions that I have, and I'm not pretending I have the answer. Oh, they weren't just questions, Jonathan. Don't give us that. You were you—you—you you, you know exactly what you were questioning, and that. The P, the synod didn't. I mean, you weren't were questions. You were you're challenging the synod's ability to respond to the to the experience of people that you just pointed out there, right? You're laying it out there. Sure. I mean, I think those are valid questions to answer, and I think uh, again, having not read the final document, I think that the synod glossed those questions, right? Yes. And so I don't you're not, think not just making questions. You're making a point. You're making an argument. You're making. You're throwing out. You're making something out there that's really hard not to respond to. And I know I, I've already said something, so I'll, I'll defer to Jen here. But that's 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 really provocative stuff. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I mean, it it um, it should be right. It should be. Um, anyway, Jen, thoughts on the synod? 
Uh, I have a lot of them, um, obviously. Uh, Mark Silk, uh, one of the religious, religion news services guys, I think that's the right outfit to identify him with. He referenced having ha- seen a copy, I think, of the Italian document, but I don't know whether or not that was embargoed and only given to selected journalists. I haven't seen an English translation hit the web of the full thing. Um, I did start looking a little bit, but I couldn't find even the full Italian. Um, Since I read Italian well enough, I probably could have caught up, but no such luck. Um, But yeah, one thing that bothers me too is so much of what we talk about when we talk about gender is actually really culturally embedded too. Mm -hmm. And it worries me that we're having a conversation where we're talking about essentializing gender without thinking about what it is we're essentializing. It's it's problematic. Mm -hmm. Hopefully we'll actually have a theological anthropology that functions by the end of the century. Fingers crossed. Um, But Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I talked... (laughs) To talk about provocative. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, 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 I want to respond, but the, the whole show would be this. So uh, we, need, we need to be disciplined. We need to be disciplined. This is supposed to be a show about Star Wars. Yes. And we're already into this. Yeah. And we we need sure to be disciplined here. That's cool. Good man, Charlie. Uh, we, we can definitely, you know, we can definitely spend a whole show and talk about the Senate. Uh, maybe, you know, we should probably just do it next time since it'll be fresh. Uh, yeah. but, but now that we've all said our piece about the, you know, uh, our thoughts about the Senate and the news, uh, I'll skip the other two the other two news items that I have just in interest of time, which you can find actually in the show notes. So just look for those uh, about scientists uh, val- validating the non-locality of particles and the story in the intercept about drone strikes. Just look for those links in the show notes. This episode is an episode uh, in which we are going to discuss Star Wars. And for all of you people out there that aren't Star Wars fans, uh, you can probably go ahead and turn it off right now. Uh, <laughs> because we're going to be talking about Star Wars. Because the, as Charlie was... Uh, prophetically. Pro- there you go. Prophetically pointed out. Uh, when we were, Our plan was to discuss this last time. But he said, hey, I think the, trailers, the new trailer is coming out on October 19th. So let's table this for the next time. So I said, good call. So we tabled it. So... Tonight, we are talking about Star Wars after the viewing of the second Star Wars trailer. So, I'll let you guys give your thoughts on the trailer. I am going to have to defer to the bigger Star Wars geeks, but when I saw it, I totally did have goosebumps. Um, It looks like it's just so evocative, beautifully shot. Um, I love the way that everything has been set up. Um, The lighting's beautiful, the storyline is already gripping, and we don't even have it yet. Um, I just like also seeing the diversity of the cast now. That's really helpful for me, I think. Um, I just, love that line. I love the line you just said. I love the story, even though we don't have the, the storyline, even though we don't have it yet. I think that's beautifully said. <laughs> that's yeah. that's just beautifully said. Um, we we have hints of something, right? Like uh, it seems clear to me, anyway, that Ray is a Skywalker. Um, she's looking off into the distance, just like Luke was, you know, in longing. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the brash fighter pilot. Um, we have. Han Solo, we have um, a new um, villain who quite explicitly in the in the um, in the trailer is taking up the mantle of, of Darth Vader. Um, I thought 
I, I also um, got chills, and I also cried. I'm not. I'm not embarrassed to say I, I cried. I the first two, um, the first two trailers, I wouldn't let myself cry because <laughs> I, I'm so burnt by the prequels in terms yeah. of like myself get excited about uh, Star Wars. Yeah. But this time, I think it was almost. I mean, unless something the movie is just totally not in line with what the trailers seem to indicate um this movie is going to sort of recapture the magic it seems to me and 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 at that prospect i definitely did shed a tear or two yeah i totally got chills uh seeing the the second trailer i felt i don't know i felt like a bit of a tool though because i had to turn on espn to actually see the trailer uh but anyway uh I did enjoy the trailer a lot. I got chills. I mean, I think Charlie's on uh, on the money when he says that Ray's a Skywalker type, uh, and you know the uh, the the person of Finn, who is the uh, stormtrooper that I think gets marooned on her home planet, is very central to the story as well. And Kylo Ren is is uh, you know you know like you said, Charlie, a person who you know says uh, who has as his stated purpose to finish what vader started uh, so he's clearly inspired by uh, the stories and what i loved though about this trailer was it it really did a good job of giving us a glimpse of what i like to call the conversion of han solo right mm-hmm. uh in the in the original star wars film which is episode four from 77 uh when he's you know when luke asks him the question you know you don't believe in the force do you his response is, you know, something, you know, like, you know, kid, I've flown from one end of the galaxy to the next. I've seen a lot of strange stuff, but I've never seen anything to make me believe there's one all-powerful force controlling everything. You know, like, uh, there's no mystical energy field controlling my destiny. So a lot of simple tricks and nonsense, right? Something, something like that. Uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, and so you see. Han skeptical of the force at the beginning toward the end of the film he says to Luke may the force be with you you know but it seems like more of like a little bit of consolation kind of yeah kind of greeting you know um but then i mean in the trailer to hear the dark side the jedi they're real you know uh and the stories are true i mean so it seems like having lived through the experience of uh, those uh, of the original trilogy, it has an effect on Han, and 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 whatever happens in the thirty years after Return of the Jedi, right, has an effect on Han, which I think speaks to the to the idea of um, conversion as the ability to discern the real, right, and and discern discern that which is transformative. Um, you know, and, and that certainly has parallels in, in Catholicism as well. But uh, I just mm-hmm. thought it was a great, wow, I just got chills. And, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And, unfortunately, I don't have tickets for opening night, so I'm dealing with it. But I, I'm, I am kind of ticked off I didn't get tickets. But I'll see it in due time, and I will try to see it in IMAX. Um, and, yeah. IMAX is so good. Yeah. One of the trailers I saw in IMAX, uh, I went to go see The Man from Uncle. Mm-hmm. And I did it in IMAX. And, um, yeah, the trailer for that looked amazing. Like, just so crisp and so mm-hmm. clear. Um, yeah. It was one of the earlier trailers, obviously, but it was just like, wow. I want to see that in IMAX. Yeah. Um, 
One thing that sort of struck me, though, as you were talking about the conversion of Han Solo, I was thinking, like, in some ways, Han Solo is the audience identification character. He is the guy that we are set up to sympathize with. Um, And he's so distinctly American. Like, he's a gunslinger. Uh, He is a smuggler, a... um, you know, he's smuggling things in, he's running about. He's kind of a rogue, and Americans always identify with rogues. And I think it's just so good that they brought him back, and he's still very much the rogue, even though he has seen things. Mm-hmm. I think he's going to be sort of the sympathetic entrance, I think, too, with him being the narrator mm-hmm. for these younger characters mm-hmm. of the experience. Yeah, I just have to remember sometimes that, you know, Star Wars came out almost 40 years ago. You know, and like I, I was, I was talking to my students the other day in class, and I asked them, you know, who was excited for the film, and then, you know, not every hand went up, and I was like, "What's wrong with you people?" And and then I asked the question, <laughs> "How many people have never seen Star Wars?" And like in one class, like ten hands went up, and I'm and I, I, I just I thought to myself, "Gosh, like I can't even, you know, be, I can't even believe that, right? It's just so uncanny because, I guess if you're older, you know, you've grown up with this, right?" Uh, I remember I remember seeing Return of the Jedi in the theater when I was eight years old, and and I was twelve you know, when they were re-released. So, so yeah. Anyway, just you know, I, I had to be reminded by a friend, you know, that we're, you know, you know, kids today who are you know, college age or even high school, you know, they didn't grow up with Star Wars uh, the way that we did, you know. So and when they did, it was Jar Jar Binks. Oh gosh. <laughs> Although they kind of repaired that by the third movie, right? Like, he just wasn't um, a major part of the plot by the end of the third. And and it's um, it's clear, uh, the it seems to me anyway, the Jar Jar Binks of Binksification of the prequel trilogy oh. is gone in the sequel trilogy. Like, it's just nowhere to be found. That's, that's another reason why... Um, you know, I think Star Wars is back with this this set of movies. Is they realize that mistake, and it's just like 180 degrees in the other direction. Yeah, it was just so. It was so, you know, it's just yeah, it was so bad. Oh, so, anyway. and that actually gets me into something that I, I think we wanted to talk about, or gets mm-hmm. cooked us into something we want to talk about, which is the concept of canon and of maybe even doctrine. Yeah. In these in these movies, I got into a big debate um, around the time of the prequel trilogy online about like whether George Lucas actually had the freedom <laughs> to to do that and still call it Star Wars, right? So like I used I used an absurd example to make the point. I'm, I said so, so. Suppose in the Phantom Menace, you know, a half hour in, they break out into like a, a Broadway show tunes dancing number, right? George Lucas just decides, oh, this is what's going to happen in the prequel trilogy. Wouldn't we all be able to just say, well, whatever this is, it's not Star Wars, even even if George Lucas has made it, because there have been certain canonical rules or doctrinal principles established for what counts as Star Wars. And we just know that you know, show tune numbers aren't part of that. Mm-hmm. And I was having a debate about, you know, whether Jar Jar stepping in poop and there being a poop joke in Star Wars. And I said, that's just not what Star Wars is. It, you know, it could be in this movie, but it's just, that's what so many get turned off. So many people is like, this is not, um, 
doctrinally sound. It's just not what's been established <laughs> as as what what Star Wars now, in fact, is. And in fact, if there isn't something like doctrine associated with it, then there isn't anything called Star Wars. Star Wars can be whatever you know anybody says it is. But I, I but I think the uh, uh, the the show tunes example I think is is a, is a good one, right? Like there can't be a show tunes number in Star Wars, and, and it, it still remains Star Wars. Yeah, it's interesting. <clears throat> um, they tried with the Star Wars cantina. They really did. You think that's, I guess I just don't think, I think of that as like a jazz in the background of seeing amazing aliens, but <laughs> there's well, no dancing. Okay. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no like choreography. There's no like, you know, people flying through the air doing jazz hands or something. Right. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, gr- it's a gritty, dirty bar with lots of disgusting aliens and like people's arms getting cauterized and lightsaber fights. And yeah. Um, you know, that's to me Star Wars. That's not uh, anywhere close. But I, but I, I've done a lot of talking now, so I'll, I'll let you two talk. talk well, about at the beginning of, if I'm not mistaken, um, at the beginning, I think Lucas um, w- went on camera at one point, is saying that you know when he created this franchise, he knew he was going to have to have some rules, right? Uh, so there, so there is the idea of canon ish i you know things uh from the get-go there so for example um you know there's no sound in space <laughs> right mm-hmm. so you right. should not hear you should not hear um engines from spacecraft in space or you know sounds from laser blasts or or explosions etc right uh but lucas just said hey this is a rule i'm gonna break you can uh you can have uh, sound in space, right? So he himself uh, set up some canonical norms, if you will, uh, for uh, for how he was going to tell this story. But I think Charlie's point about doctrine raises an interesting question, and that is, at what point does a story become so well-received, right? So this relates to the idea of the reception of teaching, right? So at what point does a teaching or an idea communicated through narrative, right, become so well-received that any future, um, any future development of that teaching that violates the um, the sense of the faithful, as it were, I'm such a nerd. Just yeah, just whatever. At what point does the the storyteller, right, himself become bound by his own canon, right? Uh, I have a colleague, and he he calls George Maker a a whorish toy maker <laughs> because of what he did to the original trilogy. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I, I said, hey, look, you realize, right, without George Lucas, there wouldn't be Star Wars, right? Um, so it it raises some interesting questions, right? So as it relates to the idea of theology, right, can uh, can there be a development uh, in in theology offered by you know perhaps even a sitting pope uh, you know that is not received by the faithful because it violates you know certain canonical norms whether that be moral norms or norms of conscience and the role of conscience and morality etc um, can there be a teaching that's not you know received uh, be, because of that and how does you know how does Star Wars illustrate that I, I think there's I think there are, are uh, legitimate parallels there. Well, the good thing to know is Ultramontanism is now completely dead. Um, if we're going to draw papal comparisons, uh, 
and, and what's the that? idea that the audience that doesn't oh, know yeah <laughs> yeah it was this very interesting uh heresy that actually like people claim it existed in late antiquity but in reality it sort of comes out of a period of crisis that is particularly uh sort of um maybe pronounced in france in a particular way uh during a time of deep uncertainty around some of the later napoleonic wars uh people were looking for somebody to be completely authoritative and start uh doing things with the church that really articulated a very strong position and they wanted there to be utter clarity so they really doubled down on the papacy um and it sort of reaches both its apotheosis and rejection like it's total like apotheosis is a bad word but it's total um sort of it reaches its height and it also reaches its rejection in vatican one so yeah but the idea is that the pope if the pope says it it's the truth even if he says that the cubs are going to win the world series after they've been knocked more or less and and there are some elements in the vatican right some cardinals who are more conservative in their theology right that would tend to hold to something um along those lines Right, who, who I think, if you press them, would uh, would interpret Vatican to in a sense that put the Pope over and above um, everything in 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 ways that Francis has clearly indicated he does not mm-hmm. uh, want to take the papacy. It was getting, it was heading towards that uh, towards that direction with the reigns of John Paul II and Benedict XVI stretching so long, the pair of them across such a long period of time. But uh, now it seems like they're realizing that that, that might not work well. Um, so it's very interesting watching a sort of response to that coming out of the right wing rather than the left. It's It's been pretty entertaining. But yeah, I mean, ultramontanism is problematic because what happens if the Pope go, becomes senile, God forbid, or if you somehow lose the Pope and there isn't a direct line, of, you know, if there isn't as clear of a direct line of succession, let's say something terrible happens to the Vatican, um, you know, so there is a tremendous risk in ultramontanism uh, that I think has gotten that sort of super papal emphasis that I think has been thought through and has been relatively substantially rejected if that unless, makes sense it, unless unless you're a, a a liberal who just loves pope francis right i've never seen a turn towards ultramontanism from the left the way that um pope francis especially in the first year uh or two um and, and you hear some you hear something like that with when people who look back with nostalgia about the time of john the 23rd right and and vatican ii it's a kind of um uplifting of that papacy in a way that, that similar that evokes at least some of the things i hear from certain conservatives about john paul ii right um and that's what i think was so interesting having them both canonized together to show, show, show the churches both lungs um as it were but to bring this back to star wars yeah. uh, if uh so so jonathan you, used, you talked about the faithful i wonder how you would think about it if people reacted to the poop joke well right so let's say like the next generation just love and there are quite a few actually younger people who i don't quite understand mm-hmm. who do love jar jar binks and yeah. loved the trilogy mm-hmm. um, what if that took off what if the the sort of census fidelium was that you can have you know stepping and poop jokes in star wars and that's really a good thing mm-hmm. it, wouldn't it still um violate um the rules that that lucas had said i mean we're, this is all by analogy right we're trying yeah. to stretch it here right. wouldn't it still have you know a, like it still would have 
not been Star Wars, right? It just would have been accepted by others as Star Wars, right? If he, I mean, to just to sort of take this uh, to, to, to the parallel, right? If he didn't explicitly declare, right, that <laughs> there, there can't be poop jokes in, in anything that bears the name Star Wars, then I, I suppose you could look at that as kind of like an organic development of canonical norms. Um, I know a lot of people wouldn't be happy with it, but I think you see the same thing happening, you know, in Catholicism pre and post Vatican II, right? Uh, there are some people who say, you know, doctrine, you know, can't change, you know, and and we we heard this at the at the Synod of Bishops, right? Doctrine can't change, um, and if you point out to some people that, hey, look at what the Church taught about the freedom of conscience, separation of church and state, uh, etc., pre Vatican II, post Vatican II, that's clearly uh, a change, right? Call it a development, call it whatever you want, uh, but the teaching is considerably different in those re- in that regard, um, w- with regard to those to those topics. Um, so yeah, so I, I I think you know that uh, even if the census fidelium accepted in this case, right, accepted the you know the Jar Jar the Jar Jar ification of Star Wars, I think you'd have a few people you know like me. Uh, who would have a problem with it? Um, but you know, at, at some level, you know, you just have to you have to recognize, you know, that you know your your uh, identity as a fan, right, uh, and your identity as uh, a believer, right. Um, even though your conscience and following your conscience, uh, even though those, those things are inviolable and important, right. There's a communal dimension to to both, you know, uh, any sort of uh, sci-fi movie franchise, you know, and religious tradition that's bigger than the individual, right? And you just have to you have to recognize that, you know, and you have to you have to make your peace with it. Go ahead, John. I'm beginning to think we need to give George Lucas a special chair, and when he sits in that special chair, then what he says is actually something that we can take to the bank about Star Wars, uh, and. <laughs> yeah, the director's chair, right? <laughs> I think that it needs to be something like, not just the director's chair, because it's not just any papal chair that allows anything to be ex cathedra. We have to get like the, you know, maybe we can borrow that th- one of the thrones from Vader or whatever, or one of the emperors. And when he's sitting on that throne, he is speaking for the canon of Star Wars. And when he's not on that throne, he is speaking in terms of marketing and publicity. Uh, maybe? Might help? Well, not well, a bad it's, idea. It's, it's interesting. This gets into the Medium article that that uh, Jonathan sent us before the show to, uh, on uh, that that harkens back actually to it's, it's sort of a, a you, know, you like this word word hermeneutical, but the interpretive mm-hmm. analysis of what r- return the end of Return of the Jedi should have been and what was the original intent. Yeah, of, uh, of Lucas uh, in that. Uh, in that episode and that might help us transition to that topic which i thought was a fascinating topic yeah so for those of you who haven't read it yet there's an article on medium.com um written by a guy named um rob uh, connery in which he argues that um luke skywalker did in fact fall to the dark side at the end of Return of the Jedi. And I'm not totally convinced by the argument that he makes, but he makes some 
he made a lot of points that really made me stop my interpretation of the end of Return of the Jedi. Um, and so it was a great article. It's totally worth the read, uh, whether you uh, you know think that Luke is you know still a Jedi or has gone to the dark side. Or, you know, uh, it's still a, a great a great read, um, and certainly you know worth reading. So yeah, so would the idea of some of some you know chair or um, forum for George Lucas to say what is canon, what is not, would that be helpful? And in in that regard, right, is this an instance, and Charlie, I'm glad you brought this up, because could this be an instance of a situation in, you know, the idea of canon and uh, sci-fi movie franchises, etc., and all these things that go with being a hardcore fan, could, is this a situation where, where, where that world, as it were, could learn something from theology? Right, in in particular the Catholic tradition. Well, it's interesting to see J.J. or to think about J.J. Abrams um, trying to respect what his predecessor has done and honor it, yeah. while clearly going in a very different direction. Yeah. And like, and what? How precisely is this being done? There's either rumors or a, or it might be even documented. Apparently, I think it's documented that J.J. Abrams and George Lucas sat down for some sort of lunch or coffee or something before Abrams decided to take the project. He just wanted to talk it through with him and who will owe to be the proverbial fly on the wall for that conversation. Right. And just to, you know, what did he ask and like how, what's his jumping off point? I wonder if he in fact asked, um, about this question because the medium article gets to the point of like, what, um, what did Lucas intend the conclusion our conclusion should be about luke did luke in fact turn to the dark side Mm -hmm. at the end and as we know um the or as many of us know that are dorks i guess uh, the original um the original title of the movies uh, um offers something darker it's it was originally revenge of the jedi Mm -hmm. and uh you know um the article talks about the fact that uh, Kurtz, um, who I believe um, was very close to the writing of the movie, said we um, originally wanted a much darker ending, and then that got changed at the last minute. Um, and that gets into very clear questions about this upcoming movie, Movie, given that Luke is, we know in the movie, but he's not on the movie poster. At least yeah. we don't think he's on the movie poster. Yeah, not that I can he was, And he wasn't in the trailer so i don't know how spoiler we want we want to get in this podcast but that that presents some very interesting questions to ask well he was in the trailer right i mean that shot of that shot of the hooded figure putting his mechanical hand on r2 uh i'm pretty sure that that's luke i don't have proof but i don't don't, i don't but I, i i would bet that that's luke uh, because when in the previous trailer, when the voiceover from Luke says the force is strong in my family, I have it right. When he says that, the image is of that same shot in the second trailer. You know that same figure putting his hand on the top of R two. So I would bet that that's Luke Skywalker. But you're right; he is definitely not. Uh, we haven't seen his face yet. We've only heard his voice in the first trailer. He's not in the movie poster. He's not. He's in not the in the movie poster. You're right. Mm-hmm. 
And there's like 17 characters in that poster and they don't have Luke Skywalker. I think it's also telling, too, that it seems like what uh, Han is referring to is that somehow a story that is not true has gotten out and he's sort of correcting a record. Or he's Uh, he's at least telling them about something that they've only heard rumors about. Right. Yeah. So Han yeah, what, what is, could have possibly Han, happened? Han, Han Solo as the bearer of tradition, right? The witness. Who? What could have possibly happened in thirty years that you go from the Jedi being the guardians of peace and justice to like, yeah, the Jedi are real. <laughs> you know, like what? Yeah. What? What happened? There has to be some sort of, and I think this is hinted at, right? There's, there's some, there's some uh, huge, you know, campaign to get rid of the rebels even though the death star is destroyed right i mean think about it you know at the battle mm-hmm. of endor the entire empire is not present at the battle of endor right there's a lot of them there but clearly that's not right. the whole of the empire so i think you have a battle that ensues and we've seen hints of in the trailer when you see the the crashed star destroyer in the sands of that desert planet right certainly indicating that something went down and, and then in the in the uh in the foreground you see a crashed x-wing like like you know several yeah. several you know yards or maybe even kilometers in front of it so i think something goes down uh after return of the jedi and the comics that are coming out that sort of build up to the mm-hmm. film i think will give us a lot more insight and i misspoke yeah. it wasn't it wasn't fit 30 years that was for the last movie it would have to go all the way back to the prequels right yeah so mm-hmm. yeah but it's still it's still un- unclear how even in two generations you go from that to that. But anyway, go ahead, Jen. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things that I find really interesting too is that there is this sense, though, that these kids, uh, Finn's young, uh, the young Skywalker woman is young. I am not going to attempt to pronounce her name. It's just not going to come out well today. Uh, But they're both very young. And so the idea that they have grown up completely innocent of these concepts, and aside from Han Solo, I don't see anybody over the age of 40 in these in, in some of these shots, you know, um, at least if, assuming it's all taking place on the same world or, you know, I mean, it just seems very strange to me. It seems like there has been a choice to have these kids grow up completely innocent of the force, even if they have it. So there's, there's got to be something. Something's up. There's a shot in the trailer of Leia putting her head on what looks to be Han's chest that just like like charlie just made me like tear up and choke up i'm like oh my gosh right that is such a great tie-in just just that image right is such a great tie-in to the to the original trilogy um it's gonna be great i do want to talk about a couple other things before our time is up um this has been great but charlie you actually have a that's out well it's not your book but you you contributed a chapter to a book on star wars and philosophy can you can you tell us more about that yeah, so there was um, the first uh, book, Star Wars and Philosophy, came out um, around the time of um, Revenge of the Sith, uh, and they did a second volume to arrive, which I think it just maybe three weeks ago, four weeks ago, went live on Amazon to be timed with The Force Awakens. Um, and it's got all sorts of great... Um, Articles in it. If you love, if you're, if you're um, into pop philosophy, thinking about big questions, but in popular context, this is really a great. Uh, I'm an ethicist, so I, I contributed to a, a part of the book called Attack of the Morals, 
and um, my contribution is about um, uh, the attack on Death Star 2 and Return of the Jedi, uh, which, of course, took place in a time when a lot of um, uh, workers were putting together the Death Star. And there's a great, um, I titled the, the, the contribution, um, uh, Chasing Kevin Smith was the Rebel Alliance morally blameworthy for attacking Death Star 2. Kevin Smith has a great, um, is a great movie maker, I think. Mm-hmm. And he, mm-hmm. he had a, a movie called Clerks in which he, he put into the mouths of his characters that precisely this argument, were the rebels essentially terrorists for for killing innocent people uh, on Death Star 2. And so I take that and run with it like a good ethicist should uh, in, in way more detail than you have to. But um, it was really fun. It was really fun to do. And there's there's plenty more great contributions in there. So what's the answer, Charlie? <laughs> <laughs> do you want the long version or the short version or the medium version? Give us like the, the one paragraph version. <laughs> well, um, I don't think the rebels were aiming at at the deaths of innocent people, right? They weren't trying to kill the um, the uh, the workers, whoever they were. And I spent some time in the article trying to figure out, and I researched this actually um, through various Star Wars encyclopedias and the like. Who were the workers? Were they droids? The, this Death Star was built a lot faster than the first one. Pretty much everyone thinks that the first Death Star was built by slave labor, probably Wookiee slave labor. Um, but this one probably had a lot more droids, and I get to the question whether droids count as, as people, right? Um, or were they the kind of droids that have self-consciousness and self-awareness? It's mm-hmm. so like a whole uh, fleet of Mr. Datas, right? Yeah, or were they more like... I'm sorry, gonk- I'm crossing the streams. I'm sorry, I shouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you got a bunch of anti-Trekkies that just turned right. us off. Don't cross the streams. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> <Mea culpa. laughs> um, this is turning into the long version. But uh, basically, I, I argue that because they're not aiming at the death of innocent people, it's not a terrorist attack where you aim at the death of innocent people, uh, either as a means or as an end, mm-hmm. mostly as a means usually to something else. Mm-hmm. And then the, then the question is, um, do they have a proportionally serious reason for um, foreseeing but not intending the deaths of those innocent people, and it seems to me that they do. This this is the distress. Well, I guess we might have some answers to that. To you know, to see what the aftermath. There's this book called Aftermath. I want to read that talks a lot yeah. about this. In this next movie, we'll learn more about. Um, you know, did this in fact end the war? It sounds like maybe it didn't. So maybe you could argue that if it doesn't end the war, I, I argued in the book that it basically did end the war, but I didn't know necessarily what I was talking about. Um, so. so maybe, yeah. So the, so the rebels taking out the Death Star, is that uh, is that in any way sort of comparable to the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? I mean, if you know that you know a considerable amount of innocent people are going to be killed, right? Um, is is that are, are are you arguing in the in the article that? It, it was disproportionate enough to justify it. Is that is that the is that where you sort of ended up in the article? Well, it sounds like Jen might want to say something about that. Sure, but, sure. But yeah, I, and just going back to Hiroshima, I think that Eisenhower debunked the idea that they thought that they were going to end the war. Uh, he said he thought it was really just pure straight up vengeance. Um, 
and I think that, you know, the other comeback is, well, maybe this might have terrified uh, the Soviet Union, but mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to have done so. Yeah. And I think they knew it wasn't going to do so either, because I think by Yalta, they kind of knew what Stalin was. Yeah. So, I well, mean, that, uh, well, that I bring that up because that's yeah. the perception, right? I mean, that's the. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's it, the classic for, for, argument. Yeah. From my perspective, at least as a Catholic moral theologian, I think it's a moot point because we were clearly aiming at the deaths of innocent people there on purpose. So whatever, whatever, whether we were trying to aim the war or just get revenge, we wanted innocent people to die. It wasn't an accident that innocent people died. It wasn't merely foreseen and not intended that innocent people died. So that's that's to me the difference. And the, the rebels aren't trying to kill innocent droids or slaves on uh, either as a means or an end. They foresee that it's going to happen, but it's not part of their intention. It's not part of the what's called the object of the act in Catholic moral theology. And for some people, that's just, you know, it sounds like academic gobbledygook. But, 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 but I think... If, I, go ahead. I was just going to say, if, you, if but if you're a, an imperial worker, right? I mean, you're working for the system. You're working for the you know, for the evil empire, right? Are you really that innocent, right? I mean, I don't, I don't want to get into the specifics that, that maybe you address in the, in the article, but um, it seems to me for that argument to work, you'd have to say that to be truly innocent, right? I mean, that the, the criteria for innocence has got to be pretty, pretty high to sort of make that one fly. Um, yeah, so that's I get into that actually quite a bit, and it's okay. a fascinating question. And that actually is in Clerks in the movie. They get into it, and like in the episode where they're yeah. discussing it, like uh, an independent contractor comes over, and he's like, "Yeah, I got this offer from like this mob boss, and totally turned it down because I know blah blah blah." But uh, but I think this is more interesting in a way because either they were they were likely not independent contractors; they were likely slaves slash robots that had no. Um, ability to say no. Mm-hmm. So, um, so if it were independent contractors who knew they were what they were doing, that might be a different question from this perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we're right, right at an hour, a little over an hour this time. But uh, yeah, this was good, man. What a great, yeah, what a great exploration fun. of uh, you know the worlds of Star Wars and philosophy and theology. This is awesome. Yeah, lots of fun. All right. Well, until next time, Charlie, Jen, have a good couple of weeks. uh, Will do. Yeah. See you next time.